Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, the U.S. Supreme Court has decided to take up Colorado's ruling barring former President Trump from the 2024 ballot. And Trump hitting back at Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. What's he saying as he returns to Iowa in the final sprint to the caucuses? And why is the New York Attorney General seeking $370 million from Trump? Iris Tao is in Iowa. The longtime CEO of the National Rifle Association is resigning. This comes just days before his civil trial is set to begin in New York over corruption charges. President Biden marked his first campaign speech of 2024. The focus attacking Trump over the events on January 6th, three years ago. Find out how the president is campaigning and what Trump has to say. Melina Weiskup in Washington, D.C. More of Jeffrey Epstein's court documents are out. See whose names showed up and what their connections are to the sex offender. The Israel-Hamas war is nearing its three-month mark. And questions still remain about how the Gaza Strip will be governed after the war is over. Israel has now laid out their plan. Jason Perry reports. This is NTD Evening News, live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Breaking news tonight, the Supreme Court has agreed to make a decision over Colorado's ruling kicking former President Trump off the ballot. Trump remains on the ballot as the Colorado court ruling has been put on hold pending Supreme Court action. This could be the high court's most significant involvement in a presidential race since Bush versus Gore in 2000. The court set an extraordinarily fast schedule. The two sides are expected to file their opening briefs by the end of the month. The Supreme Court scheduled oral arguments for February 8th. Meanwhile, Republican presidential candidates ramping up their pre-caucus blitz in Iowa. Trump hits back at Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, who are both casting themselves as the top alternatives to the former president. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao reports from Iowa. Today, most of the GOP candidates are here in Iowa trying to make their final pitch to voters before the Iowa caucus, which is just 10 days away. And Trump has two rallies today in Iowa, with one starting in just a little bit here in Mason City. As you can see, people already lining up in the cold right behind me. Meanwhile, Vivek Ramaswamy has six events on his schedule today in Iowa. DeSantis has three and Haley has two. And this blitz of campaign events comes as Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are ramping up their attacks on former President Trump, who is maintaining a wide lead in the polls. Here's what DeSantis and Haley had to say yesterday at a CNN town hall. Watch. The Democrats want Trump to be the candidate. They are going to talk about all the legal stuff January 6th. That will be what the election will be about. True. Chaos follows him, and we can't have a country in disarray. And Trump responded to both of them on true social, calling them two very unreliable and disloyal people, of course, against citing the fact that he endorsed DeSantis early in his career and that Haley said before that she would not run against Trump. We do expect to hear more of that back and forth tonight at this rally right here starting at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. Meanwhile, also today in the New York civil fraud trial, New York Attorney General Letitia James asked for a $370 million 
million fine against Trump and his companies. James is accusing Trump of misrepresenting his net worth and getting what she called ill-gotten gains. Meanwhile, Trump responded on True Social saying it's a witch hunt, again saying that he's has done nothing wrong and that his financial statements are great and, quote, very conservative. We do expect to hear more on that trial as well next Thursday when it comes to the closing arguments of this case, which Trump is expected to attend. And that is just four days before the Iowa caucus. Back to you. A top Republican is at odds with a preferred candidate. House Conference Chair Elise Stefanik withdrew her endorsement of Ohio congressional candidate Craig Riedel. Riedel has been called out for criticizing former President Trump in a recent interview. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details. Republicans who don't support former President Trump don't get to keep their endorsements. At least that's not any coming from Republican House Conference Chair Elise Stefanik. She withdrew her endorsement Thursday of Republican congressional candidate Craig Rydell, who was vying for Ohio's 9th District. In a social media post, she said she was disappointed in his inappropriate comments regarding President Trump. Stefanik said she informed Rydell this week that she withdrew her endorsement. Rydell, who was the preferred Republican candidate, came under fire last month after conservative Charlie Kirk posted an audio message to X. Rydell said in the audio that he is not looking for a Trump endorsement. Donald Trump, he's, he's a different person than me. I, I don't like the way he communicates. I think he is arrogant. I, I don't like the way he calls people names. Rydell endorsed Trump shortly after Kirk posted the audio. Because Rydell was the preferred candidate in the race, Republicans scrambled to find a replacement to unseat veteran Democratic incumbent Marcy Kaptur. Just before Ohio's filing deadline last month, House Republican leaders pushed Ohio State Representative Derek Marin to step in. The GOP is eyeing three Ohio congressional seats currently held by Democrats Greg Landsman, Marcy Kaptur, and Amelia Sykes. Republican leaders are cautious about a repeat 2022 when Trump-endorsed J.R. Majewski won the primary but lost to Kaptur. Majewski lost the race by 13 points after a news report indicated he misrepresented his military service in Afghanistan, which he denied. Top Republicans believe he would lose again. They were counting on Rydell to beat Majewski in the March primary. And now, with Rydell staying in the race, it's not clear that Marin can get enough votes to beat both opponents. If the votes are split between Rydell and Marin, Majewski could win the primary. But can he beat Kaptur? That's what the Republicans are worried about. Arlene Richards, NTD News. The longtime CEO of the National Rifle Association is resigning effective January 31st. That's according to an announcement today from the Gun Rights Advocacy Group. An interim CEO and executive vice president has been appointed. In a statement released by the NRA, LaPierre said he is proud of his work with the organization. This comes just days before his civil trial is set to begin in a corruption case in New York State. The lawsuit seeks to dissolve the NRA, claiming it broke laws for nonprofit groups, took millions of dollars for personal use, and committed tax fraud. We're coming up on the three-year anniversary of January 6th, and President Biden is using it in his campaign for a second term, attacking former President Trump, giving the speech at Valley Forge to highlight the importance of democracy. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. 
The theme in President Biden's speech here today was that democracy is on the ballot. He actually used those exact words throughout his speech today. He also used the opportunity to give January 6th as an example as to why he says former President Trump is a threat to democracy. He also took the time to make several direct and personal attacks at the former president. That's not surprising, but it does show that Biden now sees Trump as his main GOP challenger this election year. Take a look at this. America, as we begin this election year, we must be clear, democracy is on the ballot. And I promise you, I will not let Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans <laughs> force us to walk away now. He proudly posts on social media the words that best describe his 2024 campaign, quote, revenge, quote, power, and quote, dictatorship. There's no confusion about who Trump is, what he intends to do. Trump, however, is already on defense shortly after Biden's speech today. He told Fox News Digital that Biden is the true threat to democracy, turning his attention to the southern border, saying the only insurrection is the insurrection that's taking place at our border. He also took the opportunity today to make several social media posts pointing to what he says are examples of election irregularities in the 2020 presidential election. As far as other Republicans, we've heard less noise from that side of the aisle. Meanwhile, Democrats are very vocal taking the opportunity to revisit the events on January 6th and attack Republicans and also make direct attacks at former President Trump. Remember, this comes at a time when former President Trump is in the crosshairs of a federal case where he's being faced with charges related to obstruction and conspiracy. The latest here is that Trump wants special counsel Jack Smith to be held in contempt of court for continuing to take action and file motions in this case, even after the federal judge has paused this case while his presidential immunity claims are actually working through the courts right now. A federal appeals court will hear Trump's presidential immunity argument next week. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. The Israel-Hamas war has been going on for almost three months now, and many questions remain about the future of the Gaza Strip after the war is over. Israel has now laid out a plan for post-war Gaza. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Children in the Gaza Strip enjoyed a sunny day in the relatively peaceful area of Rafah near the Egyptian border. This street, which normally had cars driving through, has been turned into a market. This place was a normal place. Because of displacement, thousands of people are here, so it became a popular market. It was a normal street like any other street in the Gaza Strip, but now it's a market. Thousands of people are here. We're displaced from Shajaya. I'm standing here with my children, setting falafel to feed my family. The bread, the small bread, is being sold for 30 cents for one. Even if there is bread, there is no money. Where is the rice? People are hungry. Look at the people. They are looking at each other. Many questions arise about the future of the Gaza Strip after the war, including how will Gaza be governed after Hamas is defeated. On Thursday, Israel's defense minister laid out his plans for, quote, the day after. In regard to the new government, he laid out these guidelines. Hamas will not govern Gaza. 
Israel will not govern Gaza and Palestinians will be in charge with the condition that there will be no hostile actions or threats against the state of Israel. Also, a multinational task force led by the U.S. will assume responsibility of the rehabilitation of the Gaza Strip. And in regard to the future security of Gaza, Israel's defense minister said, Israel will reserve its operational freedom of action in the Gaza Strip, which means Israel will be free to take the necessary measures to ensure that Gaza will pose no threat to Israel. And Israel will also inspect the goods entering the Gaza Strip. And Israel's defense minister added that there will be no Israeli civilian presence in the Gaza Strip after the goals of the war have been achieved. The war has been going on for almost three months now. And since Israel's ground operations in the Gaza Strip, which started on October 20th, over 150 IDF soldiers have been killed. And the IDF says they've killed over 8,000 terrorists. And they continue blowing up Hamas tunnels and finding weapons as they make their way through the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, on Friday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Istanbul, Turkey, to start his tour around the Middle East. The State Department on Thursday said Blinken's aim is to prevent the Israel-Hamas war from expanding. Jason Perry, NTD News. The third batch of Jeffrey Epstein's court documents are out. This time there are hundreds of pages. And to be clear, being named in the unsealed documents does not necessarily mean someone was accused of or committed wrongdoing. The documents include depositions by witnesses and pages from Epstein's phone message book. Those mentioned in the documents include Jess Staley, a former J.P. Morgan Chase banker, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, her daughter Chelsea Clinton, New York City billionaire Glenn Dubin and Les Wexler, the billionaire founder of Limited Brands and former CEO of Victoria's Secret. The documents also mentioned actors, including Kate Blanchett, Leonardo DiCaprio, Cameron Diaz, and Chris Tucker. The unsealed documents are part of a civil defamation lawsuit brought by a woman who says she's one of Epstein's victims. More documents are yet to be unsealed. Coming up, more details emerge about the Iowa high school shooter, how his friends describe his personal situation. A report finds that mental health is plaguing Americans, but one professor says a lot of it has to do with how mental health is being defined in society. Cross-sex procedures for kids. The New Hampshire House votes to prohibit some of those surgeries. Arian Postar explains why some Democrats are joining Republicans in voting for the bill. And reports of recent college grads struggling to make eye contact and even bringing their parents to job interviews. Find out why employers are avoiding Gen Z after the break. Welcome back. We have more updates on the Iowa high school shooting that happened on Thursday. New details have emerged about 17-year-old suspect Dylan Butler. Following the deadly shooting at Perry High School in Perry, Iowa, students who say they were friends with the suspect said this about him. He was bullied since elementary school. I, I've been going to that school my entire life and those kids would do horrible things to him. 
The students said things started getting bad when people at school started picking on Butler's younger sister, who was in sixth grade. His parents went to the school and talked to the school and they did absolutely nothing. They did nothing. He was hurting. He got tired. He got tired of the bullying. He got tired of the harassment. Was it a smart idea to shoot up the school? No. God, no. And I, I am mad at him for that. A sixth grade student was killed in the shooting. One of the five injured was Perry High School principal Dan Marburger. Butler is believed to have posted an ominous video on TikTok before the shooting. The alleged post shows him inside a school bathroom posing with a blue duffel bag, captioned, Now We Wait. The song Stray Bullet by a German band accompanies the post. The post is now removed from the platform. Law enforcement said Butler died of self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Authorities are looking at the suspect's social media post and trying to find out about his motive. Residents in the community held a vigil for the victims. The local school district canceled classes for Friday. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. A recent report found that the majority of Americans requiring mental health assistance do not receive treatment. But a mental health expert says the situation is more complex. A mental health advocacy group called Inseparable commissioned a Milliman report that revealed about two-thirds of Americans with diagnosed mental health conditions face treatment barriers, even with health insurance. Only one-third of insured individuals seeking emergency mental health care received timely follow-up treatment. But Loretta Bruning, founder of Inner Mammal Institute, says the cure to mental health is not that simple. In reality, it's more complicated. And a simple example of that is when a person has an addiction problem, people think, oh, if only they could get treatment. But then when you find when addicts are admitted that a huge percentage of them this is their third and fourth and fifth treatment. So the idea of treatment is not the panacea that we think, and the idea that you have a disease is not as simple as we think. Bruning says a lot of what is defined as mental health today has to do with the stigma that society has established as a norm. There's this um, idea of stigma, where um, you would be stigmatizing a person if you um, insisted that, you know, you forced them to get treatment. And um, on the other hand, some people who opt for treatment complain that they're being stigmatized. Bruning believes that there needs to be, quote, standards for participating in society, saying this would help strike a balance between identifying if a person needs mental health help and avoiding incorrect diagnoses. The New Hampshire House passes legislation that would limit cross-sex surgeries for minors. Meanwhile, in Ohio, a transgender candidate has been disqualified from the Ohio House race. Entity's Arian Pazdar has more. The New Hampshire House on Thursday passed a bill that would ban some cross-sex surgeries for kids. The bill was amended to be much weaker than the initial proposal. As introduced, the bill would have prohibited giving children puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. The bill was amended to only prohibit genital cross-sex procedures. What stands out is that 12 Democrats voted for the bill. One of those Democrats said, I do not think that children should be able to get irreversible surgery. So I'll take all the heat that comes from this. 
The bill is expected to pass the Senate and go to the desk of Republican Governor Chris Sununu. Just recently, NTD Steve Lance spoke with activist Ollie London, a detransitioner. He criticized states where kids can get cross-sex procedures. We're seeing kids being uh, going to states like California, where the state now legalizes children traveling there. They can be 15 years old and medically transitioning without parental knowledge or consent. And if the parent tries to stop them, they are considered in the courts a child abuser for stopping their child cutting off their body parts. London says parents who want to prevent such things from happening should monitor what their kids consume online, especially on TikTok, where transgender ideology is being spread to kids. The transgender ideology teaches kids to uh, cut off their families because the families are bad. They don't uh, affirm their gender, they don't affirm their pronouns. So I think it's harmful. So parents need to have more insight into what their kid is accessing on the internet. And in related news, in Ohio, a transgender candidate was disqualified from the Ohio House race. Vanessa Joy reportedly changed name and birth certificate information in 2022. However, Ohio state law requires candidates to disclose name changes within the last five years. Joy refused to state the previous name and was thus disqualified. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Many Gen Z college grads struggle to make eye contact during interviews. Others bring their parents, confusing hiring managers. A recent survey shows employers are avoiding college grads for these reasons and more. Entity's Dave Martin explains. A recent survey shows that almost half of employers avoid hiring recent college graduates. Intelligent.com surveyed 800 hiring managers and found that Gen Z college grads struggle with many aspects of professional life. Around half the employers said college grads struggle to make basic eye contact. 30% said that college grads used inappropriate language during interviews. Around half said the grads dressed inappropriately. I had someone literally show up to an interview in, in pajamas with stains on it, and they were late to the interview. And, um, and, and, I, and I think they even had, like, slippers on. Joe Camberato is the CEO of National Business Capital, a New York-based financial firm with 75 employees. He sees applicants becoming more lax from not asking the right questions to dressing informally. We've literally had recent college grads, I mean, practically show up in, in almost what you probably could call pajamas um, or, or, or gym wear um, to an interview. And... And, you know, it's just, it just kind of like, it's almost like a lack of respect. 20% of hiring managers said that some college grads brought their parents to interviews. 20% said that during online interviews, some refused to turn their camera on. This is a whole generation coming up that they've been coddled. Their parents have done everything for them. Jan Goss is the founder of Show Up Well Consulting which helps organizations develop employees professionally. She calls the recent generation of parents snowplow parents. These parents plow all obstacles out of the way for their children, which ends up crippling them. Goss says young people need to be trained. Think of a young person, someone that you can speak this into their life. Who do you know that needs to learn the different kinds of eye contact or needs to learn how to introduce themselves or how to shake a hand, how to enter a room? how to you know, sit down at a dining table and have good manners. Who do you know that you could just pass these skills on to? Goss says she believes in the ripple effect. After one person trains another, he or she can ask that person to pass on the lesson, creating more and more social change. This is Dave Martin for NTD News.
Coming up, DEI, Common Core and Accountability in Education. Our guest tells us what the priorities are for Iowa parents heading into the caucuses. And why should the U.S. care about the upcoming presidential election in Taiwan? Our guest says it's a very serious matter and tells us why it's so important. We'll have that and more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. The Supreme Court has agreed to make a decision on Colorado's ruling, kicking former President Trump off the ballot. That's as Trump campaigned in Iowa today, and the New York Attorney General has called for a $370 million fine against the former president. President Biden held his first campaign event of 2024 in Pennsylvania. He delivered a speech marking the third anniversary of the January 6th Capitol breach and called Trump a threat to democracy. The longtime CEO of the National Rifle Association, Wayne Lapierre, will resign by the end of the month. Lapierre's civil trial in a corruption case will begin in New York State in just a few days. The third batch of Jeffrey Epstein's court documents were unsealed. Those mentioned in the files include Hillary Clinton, Jess Daly, Glenn Dubin and Hollywood celebrities. Israel has laid out a plan for Gaza once the war is over. It says Palestinians will govern Gaza, not Hamas or Israel. But there's a condition that there will be no hostile actions or threats against Israel. Iowa voters gearing up for the first in the nation caucuses taking place in just 10 days. What are the top priorities for parents? Joining us now to share her thoughts, we have Jen Turner, a chapter chair in Iowa for Moms for Liberty. Jen Turner, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. The Iowa caucus is just around the corner. Give us a sense of what parents' top priorities are as this caucus comes up. Um, well, I'm the Polk County chapter chair, so I'm right here in the center, and we have many chapters right around us, and all of our focus is on the same thing, making a better America for future generations. Um, so we're looking for the candidate that uh, wants a better education, and we're looking further to our grandchildren as well. It seems one of the top priorities is enhancing accountability. How does that work when it comes to education? Parents need to be involved. And what we learned was that we, through COVID and, and seeing kids at home and their education, uh, was that we didn't actually know what was happening in their classrooms. My son would come home and tell me things that I, values I would never teach, coming home with very different value sets. So... We just want transparency and accountability to to show us what they're teaching, uh, send homework home, send the books home so that we have involvement. We're really ready to get in and volunteer and do all of the things beyond school boards, PTOs, so that we can share in the education with our children. On that note, taking DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion out of education is also one of Moms for Liberty's priorities. Give us a sense of what you would like to see here and why. DEI has changed the landscape um, in 
we're going backwards it, with uh, racism, right? Uh, our kids, my son, I'm my son is biracial, and he um, came home wanting to take a DNA test at one point because he thought that it could tell him how black he was because he was wishing that his dad's skin or that his skin was darker like his dad's. That's insane. He was nine years old. And so the fact that we're pushing this DEI and teaching some kids that they're less than and some kids that they're better than um, is really going backwards because I can tell you those nine-year-olds didn't care how, who, what, what color who was. And so we have to get back to the basics of education and teach our kids how to succeed, what great country they live in, and that they have all the opportunity and it doesn't matter about the color of your skin. DEI is teaching them the exact opposite. Um, so reading, writing, arithmetic, and leave all of the social culture wars out of the schools, we'll have a better America. And another priority is seeing Common Core eliminated. Now, tell us about that, and are there any candidates that are including that on their platform? I haven't heard Common Core on any of the platforms. A lot of it, though, is we want to get away from big government right? We want it to come back to the states and we want to give schools the opportunity to um, to succeed on their own. Uh, that's why we're running for school boards. We really want local control uh, to make decisions as communities. Common Core, I think, was at a federal level and each state has kind of adopted their own. In Iowa, that is something that would be on our priorities for this legislative session here. Um, our kids don't even take spelling tests, right? They don't know how proper grammar. So uh, they can't write. <laughs> Everything's done electronically. So we just want to get back to some of those basics because they can't work. You know, they're, they're not being prepared for higher education or to get a job later. So that's the top priority. Now, zooming out in New York, Mark Levine, he's the Manhattan Borough President, is trying to shut down an upcoming Moms for Liberty event in the city. He's saying it has no place here, calling it a far-right extremist operation that harasses teachers and librarians. Now, what is your reaction to this kind of pushback? We see it all the time, but we work side by side with teachers and administration and librarians across the country. Um, do we always agree? No, but we are not bullies. We do not go after them. It seems fascinating to me that in New York, he doesn't think there's a, a spot for parental rights because that should be a non-partisan issue, right? Every parent has the ability to, to educate their children and instill their own values and mor morals. So why, why New York is exempt from that? It seems really silly to me that... There's no place in New York for that, because in my book, I think they may need it the most. Jen Turner, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you so much. Turning our attention now to Taiwan, coming up on January 13th, the self-governing island is slated to elect a new president. The three-way election race boils down to one central theme, how to deal with its communist neighbor, China. Leading the race is Taiwan's current vice president, Lai Qingde. He represents the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. Throughout his career, Lai has been known for his staunch defense for the island's sovereignty despite repeated pressure from China. 
And the next candidate in line is Hoyo Yi, mayor of New Taipei City and a former police chief. He opposes Taiwan's independence and has been avoiding speaking out about China. Trailing behind him is Ko Wenjie, the former mayor of Taipei. He recently told AP News that he believes China remains a problem, and that problem needs to be taken care of without sparking conflicts. The Chinese Communist Party sees Taiwan as its breakaway territory and has vowed to take it by force if necessary. That's despite never having ruled it. Joining us now to explore the significance of Taiwan's presidential election, we have retired Colonel John Mills. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and author of The Nation Will Follow. John Mills, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Oh, Tiffany, thank you so much. It's always an honor to be on your show. Now, you're actually heading to Taiwan for their upcoming presidential elections. This does come amid reports of Chinese interference, but what are you seeing? Well, that's a, that's a great question. The, the Chinese have gone at this a bit softer than 2020. They don't want to appear to be the uh, aggressive element. Uh, a lot of Taiwanese saw what happened to Hong Kong, and it really affected them. So they have played a, a, a they've really gone, you know, instead of going at it from the guns perspective, they're going at it from the roses perspective. And they're, they're painting uh, uh, Lai and Xiao, uh, the presidential and vice presidential candidate for the DPP, but they, they they have been pretty rough on them, you know, uh, you know, really describing them as troublemakers, and uh, have actually Xiao has been you know not been welcome on the mainland, uh, and uh, so polling is unclear. Uh, so, but it, it it appears to be you know a tight race right now. The Chinese are definitely going to use sophisticated methods to sway the public and uh, have them to question uh, question the DPP. Now, on that note, we did hear Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping in a speech on Sunday say that the reunification of Taiwan was inevitable. Now, is this a new stance, stronger rhetoric, or more of the same from China? Well, uh that is in contravention of how the Chinese have been handling the election, because that was a very, I, I would say that was probably the strongest statement by a Chinese leader ever on reunification. So um, not to contradict what I just said, but uh, uh, that is an, that is a different comment from the way the Chinese have been approaching the election, because that comment was pretty clear and unequivocal. And I, I frankly, I, I struggle to find a stronger statement in, since she has been in office and even before that on reunification. Uh, uh, and uh, so I don't think that's going to help. Uh, I, I think, if anything, that's going to help the DPP in the election on the 13th. It does seem in a way there could be two messages, right? One for within China as reunification, as they call it, has been part of the Communist Party's goal. On the other hand, maybe a softer approach when it comes to Taiwan to hopefully get one of the, from China's perspective, get a more pro-Beijing one in office. Now, when it comes to the CCP interference, whether it's hard or soft, what is the ultimate goal here? Well, I think they definitely want one of the other two parties other than the DPP. Uh, 
uh, with with uh, Lai Ching Ti uh, and and Xiao Bai Kim, they they see a a separatist, a independence movement. So, I think they'd rather have either party uh, than the DPP in power. Uh, uh, I I think. Uh, uh, it's going to be. It's this is a very serious election here, and uh, you know if the DPP was not successful in re-election, uh, it's going to be. Uh, it's going to. We're going to have to really reassess and see uh, the Taiwanese stand. Uh, I just. I, I can't believe after the experience of Hong Kong that even the KMT or the TPP would really seriously want closer relationships, but. Um, this, this uh, all eyes should be watching what's going on in Taiwan because it'll also reflect on how China will attempt to influence the American election in November of 24. And what should the U.S. and Western countries look out for as this election unfolds in Taiwan? Well, in America, we have our own issues with election integrity, not even considering the Chinese. And we have questionable the questionable role of Department of Homeland Security, CISA, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, which is also the subject of two federal lawsuits, the Missouri-Louisiana case and also the Texas uh, Attorney General case, both in the Supreme Court. So taking politics out of, out of it, if DHS CISA was being run properly, I think they'd want to watch this very closely to look at the indicators of how China attempts to influence through social media and get into networks to, I had a very good relationship and we really elevated the game on trust and sharing between Taiwan and America when I was in that incumbent in, those, in that position. I hope it has only gotten better since my departure. As you mentioned, a lot at stake here for short. John Mills, thank you so much for your time. Tiffany, thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your show. Coming up, Shenyun Performing Arts kicks off its shows in San Francisco. Audience members on opening day say the performance was more than they expected. And Oscar Pistorius, the double amputee Olympic sprinter, was paroled today after serving more than nine years for the killing of his girlfriend. Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we return. Welcome back. Audience members describe feeling uplifted and hopeful after watching Shinyan Performing Arts at its first performance this season in San Francisco. Let's take a look. Audience members at the San Francisco War Memorial Opera House shared their experience after attending Shen Yun Performing Arts at the beginning of 2024. It was so much more than I expected. It was incredibly beautiful. Um, some of the effects that they had, for example, when um, in the background there would be images of people and then they would in fact step out and be real people. I mean, that was really fascinating the way they did that. It's amazing the way they were able to just bring the whole story to life with the music. Just, oh, totally, you know, no words can describe it. The emotions, the beauty, the sincerity, the, all the work that went into making it, I was very grateful for the privilege of being in, attending this. Established in 2006, the New York-based company has a mission to revive traditional Chinese culture. 
Shen Yun also depicts the ongoing persecution of beliefs carried out by the Chinese government. That was uh, heart-touching, very much. Um, I didn't expect that. So it was, it was like so a really deep message that really reminds you we're all human deep down to our core. And just, uh, just not forget that. We all want freedom and to be, uh, to be ourselves. I feel like it's a really rich culture and a long history and a lot of, a lot of suffering and strength and hope. With approximately 20 pieces in the performance, patrons enjoy the themes of kindness and hope. It's actually very uplifting to hear that that's the intention of the dance, to make you feel uh, hope for the future. And uh, it, was, it was interesting to feel the, um, the bond between the traditional Chinese um, history and sharing it with our country. We all need hope. There are so many aspects to this presentation that show that there is the possibility of hope and kindness, support, all the things that we hope for can happen. And this was the kind of presentation that would give people hope. NTD News, California. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, Oscar Pistorius, the famous Olympic double amputee sprinter, was paroled from prison today after serving nine years of his 13-year sentence for the murder of his girlfriend. Now, has the victim's family spoken out? You know, yes, Reba Steenkamp, the one he killed, her mother did not oppose the parole, but she said that was just because she just didn't have the energy to face him anymore. Now, sadly, um, his, her father died in September. Um, now, her mother also said she doesn't believe the story he stuck to, that he thought she was an intruder in their bathroom and she doesn't know anybody that actually believed that. That seems to be the sentiment of locals. In fact, in his initial court hearings a decade ago, it drew a lot of outrage from people in the area calling for a harsher sentence. Initially, he was given a light sentence, like similar to manslaughter, but after the outrage, they lengthened it. Now, this happened at the height of his celebrity. This is not long after he stunned the world by making the Olympics as an amputee. And I, even though he's not in even though he's still young enough to continue sprinting, I believe he's 37, uh, it seems unlikely any event or any of his previous sponsors would want to be associated with him. So it's quite a fall from grace. And now shifting gears to baseball, All-Star Wander Franco appeared in a Dominican court Friday on allegations that he had a relationship with a minor. Is there any change on his status in the majors? Well, officially no. I mean, he was placed on administrative leave last August when some of these accusations first came out. That's still in place, which means he can't play, but he still gets his contract, you know, pending all the, the uh, outcome of all this. Unofficially, though, the allegations are looking a lot worse, and that is that the minor's age was 14. Now, Franco is 22, he's, and that also he's alleged to paying the girl's mother for her consent and even bought her a car. Now, so he's being accused of sexual exploitation and money laundering. The girl's mother faces the same accusations, though neither has actually been charged at this point. The judge has also ordered Franco to be released from jail. Now, I will add that Franco had previously recorded a video of himself saying that this whole thing was a scheme to extort money from him. He has a $182 million contract. But certainly from a public relations perspective, it would seem hard for him to come back from this. So uh, I will grant, though, that it's still early in the case. Well, now, looking at tennis, Rafael Nadal is suddenly unsure if he's able to play in the Australian Open after losing today. What happened there? 
Yeah, I mean, after missing a year with a hip injury, he played three matches in four days. Looked great the first two, lost today, but the bigger issue was that he needed a medical timeout in the final set after failing to convert a trio of match points in the second against Jordan Thompson. Now, apparently, it was the same hip area that was bothering him. He said he wasn't sure if it was a muscle or that same tendon that sidelined him last year. He certainly didn't look as active in that final set, I will say. Now, the Australian Open starts a week from Sunday. That's January 14, so hopefully whatever it is uh, gets healed by then. Now, in the NFL, this is the final regular season weekend, but not all playoff spots have been determined. What are some of the most pivotal matchups? Well, Pittsburgh versus Baltimore Saturday night. Pittsburgh is one of four AFC teams with a 9-7 and seven record, but there's only two of them, room for two of them in the playoffs anyway. Now, they pretty much have to win, but they do catch a break because Baltimore is going to be sitting MVP favorite Lamar Jackson. That's followed by Houston versus Indianapolis. Two more teams who are 9-7, and seven, both on a tiebreak advantage over Pittsburgh, though. The NFC, meanwhile, it's a total mess. I mean, mainly that's because no one has taken the NFC South yet. Tampa Bay and New Orleans are tied for first in 8-8. Eight and eight. I believe Atlanta is a game behind them. All are still alive. None have clinched. Uh, now, the Buccaneers have the tiebreak advantage. And if they beat 2-14 Carolina, like pretty much everybody else has, they're in. I think the best matchup, though, is Miami-Buffalo Sunday night. Winner takes the division. Buffalo routed them a couple months ago, but they haven't actually clinched a playoff spot despite a 10-6 record. Miami, meanwhile, got ripped by Baltimore last week. The game will be in Miami. There's plenty for both teams to play for. Sounds like it, Dave, as always. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.